Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. And today on the show, we have Yotam Avni. He's a DJ and producer from Tel Aviv. He's also been a journalist and some of his most notable forthcoming projects are journalistic, as we will hear during the course of the conversation. Now, because he's from Tel Aviv, I have to mention the political situation, obviously the wider issue of Israel and the political situation there seeps into music, the world of music, the world of live music in particular. Obviously, there's many artists that don't want to go and play in Israel for political reasons. And um, I'm not one of those people. I obviously share the concerns and, um, you know, condemnation of the various actions of the Israeli government and the Israeli military over you know quite a long period of time. But I feel like boycotting is something which opens oneself up to questions relating to other countries that you do go and play in. So I guess it's kind of related to the kind of exceptionalist argument that I made regarding streaming platforms. Obviously, it's a very different issue, but I guess I see it in a kind of similar kind of a way. You know, there are many countries around the world who have appalling human rights records and all the rest of it, but don't seem to attract quite so much attention for many reasons. And I'm, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in all that. I mean, the, the, the reason actually that I wanted to get this episode done was the way I see it relating to the events in Ukraine. And I don't mean politically or, or militarily, I mean relating to the way the citizens of the country with the stronger military in both of those situations are kind of treated by the outside world. So, you know, uh, Russian citizens 
have had a hard time from various corners, regardless of their political views. And likewise, Israelis are often targeted indiscriminately by various hardliners on one side of the debate. So, I mean, I find those two things extremely problematic, frankly. Um, You know, you can have a political disagreement with someone and, you know, sometimes that goes quite far and that's, I guess, okay. But if you're, you know, if you're just lumping anyone in with the actions of their government without giving them a chance to, I guess, you know, make their own case and ignoring their own, you know, political stance. Um, yeah, this this doesn't sit well with me at all. And so in the course of this conversation, Yotam and I get into that. Um, I didn't want to make it completely about those kind of things. It's pretty heavy subject matter to talk about. So we also talk about obviously his career and, um, you know, his contribution to the scene in Tel Aviv, both as a DJ and producer, but also as a journalist. And um, he is someone who has a sense of humour, which I think is best appreciated through the lens of where he's lived his whole life. I'm not apologising for him at all. I think he's great, actually. But yeah, he is certainly a product of his environment in many respects. But anyway, let's get into it. Um, I'll come back after the conversation, as usual, with a few more thoughts and some release news and all that stuff. So, um, without further delay, here is Yotam Avni. Yotam Avni, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you for having me so much. I feel so honored and privileged and special. Um, yeah, well... <laughs> You're definitely special. I think we've already established that over the, <laughs> the course of your career. Thank you. Listen, I'm, I'm going to ask you something just to kick off, and it's not going to be directly relevant to maybe the rest of our conversation, but I know you're a big hip-hop fan, and I just wondered what your opinion was of the Kanye West album rollout. Oh, wow. I actually have a surprising answer to that. I was listening to the Recondite interview you did, and I was really surprised that someone like Recondite also follows Drake and Kanye so heavily, but how can you not? I mean, and I want to tell you that um, I think I'm one of the only real heavy hip hop heads that intentionally didn't listen to both Drake and Kanye's albums, to be really? honest. Okay, but... Yeah, I'm fed up with Kanye. Ten years I was supporting him. I was defending him on so many stuff i was like the minute you're gonna release an album that is not brilliant i'm gonna stop following you and when he when he exposed the fact that drake is having a baby with a porn star on a Pusha T record i was like that's it man this is really beneath the belt you're self-centered you're selfish it's bad energy and the last album was horrible so i was like i don't follow it i didn't listen to the gospel album and it's really hard to avoid this album, Paul. It's really, really hard to avoid not listening to it. Just yesterday in the in some mainstream uh, radio news in Israel, they called me to interview about the Netflix series. And I was like, listen, guys, I don't follow him anymore. I know that I used to be very associated with Kanye as a fan, but it's done and over. So that's my answer. Sorry about that. I mean... Okay, that's that's totally fair enough because um, 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I was kind of scratching my head at various points over the last few years as to why you were um, remaining Team Kanye. I mean, I have to say, I've never really been Team Kanye. But what was, in your opinion, what was the uh, what was the golden age of Kanye? The, I mean, a lot of people would say that the beginning, the so-called soulful polo beats and whatever. But for me, even during Jesus and A to End and Heartbreak is for me like his best work. That's got to be my favorite album. And Jesus is amazing, but his character is horrible. He's not a good person. I mean, for a while we thought that, okay, someone that is that devoted to his craft and art you can uh, give him some slack by being crazy or narcissist, but no, his intentions are bad. He's sick. He's ill. He's not Muhammad Ali. He's Donald Trump. Seriously. Yeah. So I don't want to support him anymore. I'm not going to listen to the album, not going to watch the Netflix series, even though everywhere I go, even when Scuba interviews me, for some reason, <laughs> they're asking me about it. <laughs> and I have to say that I don't want to hear about it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, let me ask you something a bit more general then about hip hop. I want to keep yeah. on this for a moment because, I mean, I think the um, maybe even the first time I met you, I think we were having a meal um, in a restaurant in Tel Aviv and you were telling me about what you considered to be the golden era of hip hop, which was not what everyone else's idea of the golden era, i.e. the, the mid 90s. Like you, you genuinely felt that um, I guess it, I guess it was about ten years ago, or maybe a bit less. There was a, right. a contemporary. Yeah, yeah what I think I meant probably is that we are just uh, being introduced to a new golden age, and that hip hop or so-called trap music is going to rule the charts for the next decade, which is which is something that didn't even happen in that scale in the nineties. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the fact that Drake is yeah. the most played artist in the last 10 years is a bigger achievement than Tupac Selins, Biggies, or whoever you want, even Run DMC. I don't know. You cannot compare it to any other. So probably this is what I meant. I mean, artistically, you can argue by, by your likings because this era is the mumbling era, right? I mean, dumbing down of lyricism, even though we have Kendrick and such. But we can all agree that like there are more... There's, there were never that much rappers and hip-hop music being produced and received in the world. So that's just a fact. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess one of the features of hip-hop since 2000, I guess, or certainly in the, the kind of advent of the digital music era is that like the hip-hop scene really embraced those new technologies in a way that like, many other musical genres, like the scenes associated with musical genres did not. Like I'm just comparing it to like, you know, the, you know, just comparing it to the 90s, like the, the music that dominated the charts in the 90s was like, you know, rock and pop still. But those, I mean, particularly the rock, the rock kind of infrastructure is not engaged with, you know, digital music and streaming and all the rest of it at all. You know, so I guess, I mean, right. to an extent, hip hop has kind of like stepped up to the plate there. Because fair? we hip hop and electronics music were always related. We are cousins. I mean, we came from the same place and... The two main instruments that you can say that contribute the most to trap or modern hip-hop are both FL Studio and Autotune, which are not the most cutting-edge technology, but um, they're even basic. I mean, FL Studio is considered to be a pretty basic program. 
but I don't think there's any more distinctive sound in the last decade than those, you know, fast uh, hi-hat patterns that FL Studio has a lot of credit for. And to be honest, this is a horrible thing. It sounds funny and weird, but I have a FL Studio tattoo on my neck because I owe it all also. <laughs> I'm an FL Studio producer myself, and I was always, be, always was ashamed of it. When everyone was debating Ableton or Logic or whatever, I was secretly saying, man, I'm on FL Studio. And now I can proudly walk around and say, yeah, we did it. We are ruling this game, FL Studio, baby. Not only dubstep, but everything you hear is, is from FL. So It's funny. I never associated those hi-hats with, with FL Studio. What, what is, what, what is oh, that? There's a, there's a VST in FL Studio built in called Grossbeat, which is the responsible for all the halftime effects, and a lot of the trap sounding motives that you hear came from that plugin. If you go on YouTube and watch, you know, behind the beat of every, every trap producer from Travis Scott and Mike Dean to 808 Mafia, Metro Booming. These are all FL Studio users, just wow. so you know. So, I actually yeah. ha- I had no idea. Now you know. Now that's really interesting because obviously, as you said, that early dubstep thing was dominated by people like, you know, people like Scream using, using that program too. And I guess early Grime as well. Yes, I heard in an interview, I don't remember by who, that someone said that dubstep is on 140 BPM because this is the BPM that FL Studio <laughs> is opened by. You know that tale? Yeah, I think I was Scream who said that probably. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's super interesting. All right, well, listen, um, <laughs> let's zoom out a bit. I just did doing a little bit of research for this. I, I, you haven't really been interviewed a huge amount in terms, well, certainly not in... Um, there's not a lot of like in-depth interviews with you mm, around. Right. And I figured it'd be interesting to like go back a bit to how you first got into making music. Because I, I generally don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, and I know you're from, obviously I know you're from Tel Aviv, but I don't know anything about what your kind of you know, journey into music was. So like, give, give us an idea of like, you know, your kind of form- formative period. Yeah, so um, this is a good time to apologize in advance for my weird accent and bad grammar it's due to the fact that i'm israeli and i'm still living here so i don't speak english on a regular basis nowadays so it's a good practice for me um my parents are russian so they came to israel in the 70s so i was born and raised here and living in tel aviv is, you know, equally far from both the States and Europe. So we got both of them equally. Like we had a lot of knowledge and respect to American sounding music just as much as European. Whether if you go to, you know, the UK, you have your really big scene of your own. And if you go to Berlin, you'll meet people that never heard a Louis Vega set, for example. So in that case, I'm really happy that I was born and raised here. And that's why my musical style is a bit uh, all over the place. Because for me, I started by wanting to be a music journalist, actually. Do you remember Jokey Slot, the magazine? I, I do. So that yeah. was a big thing here. A lot of uh, Israeli DJs are influenced by that. And my dream was to write about electronic music in Hebrew. Also in Israel, we had a few like Israeli versions of that magazine. 
Um, but is is when I- let me let me ask you. Sorry, sorry. Let me just jump in and ask you. What was it about Jockey Slot in particular that was that was like different to those other mag- magazines? Well, first of all, I mean, comparing to mainly DJ Mag and Mix Mag, they were much more. I don't know, jokey. They had more things about mm. drugs, more gossip. Um, and musically, they covered mostly, you know, global underground DJs, while in Jokey Slot, you can have other things as well. So it's mainly the, the musical output that they covered. Um, music was good. Remember, music was a, was a cool magazine, but DJ Mag and Mix Mag were always seemed really commercial to me. So... I mean, first of all, Israel is, uh, in case you don't know, is the not a birthplace, but um, it has its uh, rich history and importance to Psytrance music. It's the biggest thing here. To be an Israeli that says that he doesn't like Psytrance is like saying you don't like hummus. <laughs> you have no idea how hard it is and how people really cannot even conceive it it's like saying i'm an anti-zionist to living in israel or something they just can't bear it can't understand it and it's been a real real struggle for me because nothing in this world i mean there's no bad music i think there's only bad timing to play the music i'm sure i can enjoy a good polka song if it comes at the right place but there's one genre that i really hate is trans music something about it just reminds me of israeli army of israel machoism I mean, here it's related to army and other stuff. It's the biggest export here alongside oranges. So they're like a lot of my friends are like into it and producing it. And there's a lot of big agencies for that genre. And it's so well received here that you even have religious group in Israel that are using trans music for their service and, and, and prayers and, and whatever. And you have it on weddings and you can hear it on the radio. There are a few like really big rock and mainstream acts that have, you know, side-trans sounding singles. So that's a really big thing here. And uh, to grow up and to... And has that been, that has been the case since you were, since you were a kid? Yeah, most definitely. And for me, it was bad because I didn't like it. Um, and I was really gravitated towards, maybe it has to do with the fact that my father was a jazz drummer and we have a nice collection of records of jazz and ECM records. So world music and jazz was always like a big thing for me. And as soon as I heard Derek May and the Body and Soul crew, I was like into house and techno the whole progressive sounding stuff, just some global underground DJs I do appreciate and like, but for the most part, it was like American sounding music that got me into it. So it was always like a clash between, you know, wanting to play gospely, <laughs> soulful vocals to a crowd that really doesn't get it. So it's mm. been rough. <laughs> in that sense so how was um when how were you exposed to that music like what was the um like you obviously you mentioned the magazines and stuff but like what was it like as a kind of as a kid in in tel aviv trying to i guess search out different musical styles and electronics and you know what, what, what were the ways in i'm 34 so it means that i remember the the days where you had where you bought cassette tapes like real mixtapes and 
DJ sets had big value, not like today where like it's endless, you know, for free. So radio mixes was a thing. We had a few local radio broadcasts on weekend that played different DJ sets and also live um, recordings of whatever is happening in Israeli clubs. So as a kid, I'm talking about 10, 11 years old, I used to be awake every Friday and Saturday night to record cassette tapes, to listen to this music. When you didn't know how it was called, everything was either trance or house, and that's it. Like the, There wasn't that many sub-genres and all that right, knowledge. Yeah. And again, I was gravitated towards all genres. So if a Ninja Tune DJ came and played a good set, I liked it. And also some of the trance stuff, I, I buried. I didn't love it, but I was like... It's interesting for me enough because um, the electronic sound was a thing that I was gravitated to also in general, you know. So it was radio sets, it was uh, magazines and going to the local record shop, you know, and nagging the guy that works there. So a lot of the older DJs know me from a very young age. I was that kid that hang around all the DJs and all the journalists. But when I was in junior high school, towards high school, we already had like uh, fast internet connections. So that's where forums came to place, you know, before Facebook and all of that. And from there I went, I don't know if you know the website Deep House Page, which was uh, an archive for all the old school, rare house, uh, soulful house sets, everything from Larry Lavan and Frankie Knuckles and all the Tony Humphrey stuff. It was this really... You mean um, mixes? Yeah, yeah, mixes on a real player. Yeah. Remember real player? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And actually, I, I do remember that site as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that now that you mention it, it's going back a while, obviously. But um, yeah, called Real Player. That's a, that's a definitely yeah, a blast yeah, from yeah. the past, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy that I remember that. Every time I, I remind someone, it's, it's making a smile because it was this blue, beautiful logo, and it was a, such a nice thing to have. Yeah, I remember when, when there was an up, when there was an update, yes. <laughs> Real Player update. It was like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sorry, go. So I was listening via real player. I could listen to, you know, Pitong and the Essential Mix from Israel. And Carl Cox had a regular radio show in Paris in Radio FG. So I was listening to it like as a junior high school kid, you know, with a real player and a basic internet connection. But in the Deep House Page forum, I was very, very active. And one of my first... Uh, um, breaks as a producer came from there. I was asked to try to remix a track by Kiko Navarro. I don't know if you know the name. That's a totally yeah, yeah, yeah. Latin house kind of uh, DJ. And he asked me to try to remix one of his tracks, this like really cheesy Latin house track. And I did a remix that went really really well i mean now on youtube it's like nine million views or something it's like my my biggest hit that no one in the so-called underground scene should know about not even my agent <laughs> right okay. but but if you search on youtube yota mavni and you search it by view count you'll be exposed to my biggest hit ever it was licensed to a olympic mix album or something to a tiesto mix album and it keeps getting re-releases. It was just re-released again. And it's this super big... I mean, my, my, the, the vocal is like cheesy Latin house, but the, 
the track that I wrote for it is like more minimalistic because it was close to the time that inner vision started. You remember that minimal becoming soulful fused whatever kind of sonar collective sound. So that was my first breakthrough. So by the okay, hang on, hang on, though, hang on, though. let's just slow down a bit here. Yeah, sorry jumped, about jumped that. ahead a fair bit. No, 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 it's, it's fine, and, and it's funny because uh, I'm I listened to that track this morning, oh, wow. and it was the first I having like having you know, been digging around. That's funny, okay, <laughs> for your time, Avenue info, and that's the first time I've ever heard it, right? So <laughs> it's pretty funny, but um, anyway, what I was going to say was, um, yeah, I wanted to go back to how you you know started making music in the first place because it's obviously you know a big jump from you know zero to having a hit. The Tiesto's yeah. playing. So, how did you um? How did you get into uh, into producing? And like, you know, how much music did you do when you were when you were much younger? And like, how did you actually decide that you wanted to properly produce? Yeah. So it wasn't like a decision that I'm gonna produce. It was just being asked to do it. I mean, Kiko asked me because I was doing edits. I was re-editing like Osunlade tracks or whatever things like that, and I uploaded and shared them on this forum, and that's why he addressed me. I was, funny enough, I never thought about it, but I never had a set of turntables or CDJs at home, never in my life, and, and, but I did mess around with like uh, Rebirth, probably everyone you know was messing with Rebirth, Rebirth program, yeah, yeah, yeah. and FL Studio came pretty soon, and I was just making edits that became remixes that eventually became original music, so... That's the route that it happened, I guess. Like how old were you when you first started getting into that stuff? So when I was like 15, 16, I was messing around just for myself in every genre. Like when I, there was a time that I was really into breakcore also and, you know, jungle. And so I did some experiments with that. I mean, I'm much more into sample based music than synth oriented stuff. So even in techno and house, I'm more towards the Frankie Bones, DJ Sneak kind of method, more than, you know, modular, whatever, synth, blah one kind of approach. So just going back again, um, like presumably you'd started going out to clubs as well, because we've jumped from when you were a kid going to record shops into um, into making tunes. But like, obviously there's a, there's a sort of club scene aspect to that too. So, like, what were the, like, what were the key things going on in Tel Aviv that kind of resonated with you when you were younger? Um, so, when I was old enough to go out to clubs, it was just the decline of mega clubs and a revival of more smaller venues. I think it happened worldwide, but specifically, it happened in Israel for because of uh, bad reasons for in. 20 years ago, exactly, there was a suicide bombing outside of Pacha, Tel Aviv, which killed like hundreds of people outside of the club. And that marked the end of like big clubs and big gathering outside because, you know, due to security issues, it was just not, not it didn't make sense anymore. So I grew up a lot uh, towards the small clubs in basements and everyone around me telling me that it's all gone pitong and whatever we had in the 90s was bigger and better and now it's just crumbles of whatever. So I always felt like my generation had 
a much less great of a scene. But growing up now, I can tell you that we surpassed the 90s and Tel Aviv scene is bigger and better than ever. And never before we had so many Israeli DJs like in the, in the world, like famous DJs that are not trans. I mean... When I grew up, right. it was just Guy Gerber was the one of the only ones who, you know, made it outside of the trance in Cocoon. Shlomi Aber was next. Shlomi was a big influence for me. You can count on one hand, like the amount of techno Israeli DJs that are famous worldwide. And now it's completely different. So anyway, when I started to go out, it was the Electro House years, 2003, four. Those were bad years for me. I didn't like that sound. But there were a few really great small clubs in Israel that hosted, you know, um, really cool micro house nights, even Ecufen and Deadbeat right. and things like that I saw here. Um, and gay parties were like the place where you can hear, I don't know, Aaron Carl and Derek Carter or Frank Roger, Louis Vega. So... So yeah, I mean. So which what were the what were the venues though? This, okay, the, the small venues. One of them about. was called the uh, Sofa Beat, and because it was like a really small place with a big sofa in the middle of the dance floor, so that's why the, <laughs> right, okay. the weird name. And Marshall Jefferson even played there once. Um, other than that, there was Hauman Seventeen, which is supposed to be a quite known. That's the only big club that survived the 90s and still active to this day. The guy who runs it, his name is Ruven. He has the most ex- amazing musical taste. He's the one bringing anyone from H Foundation to Richie Hoting to David Alvarado. Josh Wink was a heavy guest. Josh Wink is also Jewish and we're very proud of him. He was like our Drake in techno for many years. Like a Duke in techno. Look, Wicked Man, he's one of us. So uh, Hauman 17 is a place that if you search in SoundCloud, you can find amazing old sets by Stacey Pullen, Derek May, Josh Wink and all of that. Okay. So, and at what point did you start, I guess, like participating in the scene in a more direct way? Was it, was the, was producing the first way in or were you DJing and putting on shows, putting on little parties as well at any point? Right. So in 2000, between 2005 and 2010, like I said, the musical wave was not really into my liking. So I had uh, different day jobs and I was happy to do other stuff. I mean, in general, it was never my goal. I mean, the kick on Avaro thing happened when I was like um, 18 or 19. And I had a few gigs just because of that track, but it didn't elevate to a steady career because I didn't follow up with more music and didn't have any agency. It was just people approaching me personally. And it wasn't like a goal, but in 2003 or in 2013, 14 and onwards, when the Bergain's sound came to, I mean, uh, first, when the Bergain's sound marked his first, you know, steps or whatever, that was a thing that I felt. I was like, okay, I think it's going to be a big musical wave. And I remember specifically Truncate. I was like, man, this is really funky stuff. This is like, you know, swingy techno, whatever. And the whole reverb kick drum of Ben Clock's first releases was also really exciting for me. And with a few friends, I decided to start doing parties that are devoted to this sound here in Tel Aviv from 2013 or 14 until, I don't know, 2018. 
I hosted many DJs from Abdullah Rashim and Steve Rahmad and Lucy. And by that, I became close to them and released on their labels because I hosted them. So for me, it was doing the parties, definitely, and catching that wave, feeling that I can ride this musical wave for a while before it gets trance, where we're at today. So, uh, yeah. And where did your DJing fit in? Um, in that kind of puzzle? Oh, I mean, uh, I was known as a warm-up DJ uh, even from the Kiko Navarro days, like whenever some kind of a real house DJ came, I don't know, Terence Parker came, so I was the guy that you know is going to do the warm-up because there aren't many DJs playing that type of house music. So I was known in the scene like as a semi-active warm-up DJ, But 2014, it was a switch. I was like, I'm really into this new techno sound. And it was a big change for me from becoming a warm-up DJ to a closing DJ in Tel Aviv. It was around the time I was before my 30s, 27 or something. I started to work exclusively on nightlife and, you know, got into drugs and crazy lifestyle of just parties, hosting DJs on weekends and producing music that inspired by those events which led to this uh, career that I have now. Okay. So were you, like, would you not have characterized yourself as someone, like when you were, like, you know, late teens, early 20s, obviously you mentioned that you had that tune out and stuff, but like was, was music a, a really big part of, of your life in terms of what you were doing then? Like was it something that you, you know, you knew you wanted to do this as a, as a career or like at what point did that happen? Yeah, I mean, so I always I was always involved in music and producing not, for the sake of having a career, I was always involved in being a warm-up DJ, and I was a music journalist. I wor- uh, wrote for uh, Time Out Tel Aviv on a regular basis, interviewing every DJ on the planet. Even Steve Aoki I interviewed once. I asked him if he know who Robert Owens is. He said no. And I said, how, how are you claiming to be a house producer that never heard of Robert Owens? And he hung up on me. <laughs> And I wrote that he hung up on me in the interview. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, okay, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Because you, 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 you mentioned at the top, actually, that you, um, that was your kind of, you know, your first um, thought in terms of participating, you know, being, being a journalist and, and jockey slot and all that. So, yeah, t- tell me how that developed then. Like, wh- how did you first get into that? And um, how did you get to the point where Steve Aoki was hanging, <laughs> up, hanging up on you? One of my best moments in, in my music journalism career. Um, so again, it, it's a lot to do with the internet. I mean, I was active in a few Israeli forums and as a kid, I knew all the, you know, all the journalists who's a good DJ and I wrote emails and I was sending CDs to every radio station. So I was this kid that, you know, people knew that he has a lot, a big knowledge about house and techno and whatever. And the nightlife sections in the big magazines is not something that a lot of people, you know, are trying to achieve. Like normal so-called journalists want the news section, the, 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 the music review section, but specifically the nightlife slash electronic music, there weren't that many people, you know, right for the job. So it wasn't that hard for me to start by just doing the announcing which parties are coming this weekend. And from that, it got involved into interviewing DJs on a regular basis. I'm talking about hundreds of DJs that I interviewed. Steve Oki is the funny 
most funny example that I can think <laughs> of. But from the cool people, it's like Giles Peterson and um, even someone from the Sanra band, the last surviving Sanra came to a show. So in my phone, I was always proud. I, ha- I had like the most coolest phone numbers in the world of like the coolest people in, in the music industry without being a musician. I was very proud of that. So I, I really wanted to, you know, to write a book and to make a career like, uh, uh, you know, DJHistory.com. What's the name of the guy, the author of so many great books about history of DJing that you, you should know? Oh, um, Simon Reynolds, maybe. Yes, for example. I want to be the Israeli version of that, maybe, you know, teach about it, write a book about it. I still want to. I don't know if you remember one of my ambitious projects that I never finished I'm still in the work it's still in the works for me is writing about uh, the hundred most important DJ sets of all time or mix albums in all genres oh, okay. so those are the things that interested in me the most but sadly enough in my generation as I grew up you know print magazines were dying and it became less and less relevant it was either you're gonna write about news or culture in general and try to be an editor of a magazine or go get a job because you won't make a living. I even thought about at some point, you know, to write in English, to, to try to go to Accelerate or RA or whatever. But even there, it was like, it wasn't really, you know, enough money to, to make it into a serious career. So I was compromising on DJing, funny enough, in a sense. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask a sort of adjacent question to that chancing on what you just said because you know as as you mentioned you know since that kind of late 90s heyday like the music press has really declined over time and and particularly in the last 10 years i think uh, to the extent now that i was kind of joking with machine drum on on an episode a couple of weeks ago that you know his his kind of legendary five out of five review on ra for his rooms album you know, would that even really matter now? Or, or would, would there even be a, a review of it? Because I mean, like a, a lot of the whole thing seems to have just like, just disappeared really. I mean, particularly I know from, you know, from running the label, like a big part of PRing a release used to be getting reviews, but it's just, it's just not in the conversation now. So, so I guess, I guess my question is like, how do you think about like that decline of like the, the music press more generally and, and what do you what do you attribute attribute it to? It's really heartbreaking because like I said in the beginning, for me all of my education come from reading those magazines. If you if it wasn't those magazines I I would never know the history of house music or techno music and I would never go deeply into the true art form that is DJing and dance music and if you think of, I thought about it a lot. I mean, if you're a 20 year old kid nowadays that get, gets into this music, it only happens on YouTube. Like you're surfing on YouTube, you know, the algorithm offers you Tomorrowland sets, then Solomon, then Charlotte David, and it will never get you to, you know, Frankie Knuckles or Adonis or whatever, you know, and there's no, no place where you can get this information unless unless you go unless you go unless you're gonna, gonna google and go to wikipedia you know it's really hard to get this information and it's really important i think also the young generation wants that uh, 
for someone to explain, you know, explain the definition of techno music for once and for all, you know, explain the definition of progressive house. What is it? How you define it? Who's important? Whatever. There's so many as- different aspects of this culture that I feel that it's really heartbreaking that the younger generation are not exposed to it. It, you know, never in before in history, there were so many people interested in techno and house music. But for some reason, the information is just in its lowest peak. And in journalism in general, you know, should move towards videos, right? So you have the electronic beat stuff, the funny, I guess which track is it or whatever. But I think it's very important if someone will actually, you know, dedicate the time to bring this really basic information that you know already to. But think about younger kids that needs to know that. I, I really think it's important, so it's heartbreaking for me. And I'm really working on contributing in my own language to the local scene about it. I'm writing for a long time now this segment about 100 most important mixes, and I'm writing the dictionary of genres to explain in Hebrew what is techno, what is house, what is deep house, you know, everything. And eventually to present it on YouTube in Hebrew and maybe with English translation because I saw that Nastya is doing interviews in Russian with English tr- translation and people over the world follow it. So that's what I'll do also at some point. So um, like just, just more generally though, do you think that like or how much of that decline? Because you mentioned, you know, the, the financial aspect of it, that, there, that it's just not really a, a kind of viable career for someone who isn't kind of independently wealthy like I mean is it is it just that do you think is it just the decline of resources in the sector or is there something more to oh it's technology in general I mean uh, people are le- reading less they want their content in video that's why I'm saying I mean journalism should be focused now on video content I don't know if you know there's this guy in Berlin a really cool American guy in Berlin who He has this channel called Dub Monitor. He's doing like little segments and about different things regarding dub techno, different labels and different specific artists that he goes deep into their biography and plays a bit of their tracks. And it's for really heavy music heads, not like basic stuff. And so if anyone, if you don't know him, you should definitely check this guy out. He's, to me, he's like a hero. This is what... I hope we'll see more and more the decline of the big magazines, but the rise of, you know, independent journalism, quote unquote. How can we have so much music reviews on general music and trap music and not on house and techno? Why? Like, give me one reason. Why? <laughs> I don't get well, it. I mean, that was, that was always the problem with music reviews generally, right? Is that they were pretty insubstantial and they always seemed to be a little bit irrelevant, even when they seemed to have a ta- relevant, relevance attached to them. So yeah, I mean, I suppose that I suppose the rise of independent journalism of which long form podcasts such as these are kind of part right like the the potential the potential for those to deliver a lot more substance, I guess than like the traditional style you know magazine bite sized chunks of text kind of thing, which, as I mentioned, was you know w- wasn't always hugely satisfying. For me anyway as a uh, as, as a kind of consumer of music when I was a kid but like I mean I, having said that I completely echo what you were saying about the influence of, of those magazines and it was completely my way in too so let me let me ask you then since seeing as you mentioned that guy in Berlin um, I know you've traveled a lot around Europe sort of immersing yourself in the various different scenes and Berlin's obviously a key one arguably the key one what were your first experiences of Berlin? 
And how do you think about it generally now? Wow, my uh, relations with Berlin are quite complex. I'm having a hard time with its strict politics. Um, you know, as a, when I... Yeah. I mean, I started as producers, you know, the Kiko Navao stuff is really cheesy. It's not relevant to Berlin at, at any point. But growing up and I was into the Bergheim sound... Um, I'd still at the same time wanted to do like hit records, quote unquote. And I did, you know, inner visions alongside Lucy's stroboscopic artifacts. So, and I wanted to do it under the same name as if to show everyone, look, you can do both. I can be accepted in Bergheim and in Watergate at the same times. It's still, as long as it's good, tasteful music, it's good and tasteful music. Stop patronizing each other. You know, and it was really important as like a mission for me to do to do it both to get a pitchfork review and to have a number one hit on uh, I don't know Juno what people play in Bitport. And I did that in 2016, which led me to go to Paramount Agency with you. This is, was like my the years that I got exposed and known. And The people that know me and, and booked me, they told me, like, Yotam, the fact that you did both hate podcast or slam radio podcast and kind of music, you know, Rampa and, and Miz podcast at the same time, only you can do that. And I was like, yeah, thank you. I wanted to be the guy that it hangs out with Adriatic and Ben Clock at the same time. Show me another producer is a favorite of both those two, you know, but... The, in, in the Berlin politics, you know, they are very unforgiven. Once you do something a bit, you know, outside of the Osgood purism, you, you'll suffer. And this is what happened to me. In, in general, I think Berlin really confused me. And that's why I'm now realizing more towards I fit much more to the Dutch scene, to Holland. You know, where techno is not that gloomy and dark and industrial as in Berlin, you know, because I, I think I w I'm not that into really dark experimental stuff. I'm somewhere in the middle and I have many good friends, you know, all of my friends are living there. I have a few Israeli friends that are working in agencies and, you know, and, and they told me, like, come join our agency. And I was like, musically, I'm not there. So it took me a while to realize that. As much as I love and been influenced by Berlin, I can't let it, you know, control and confuse my musical ambitions in a way, if you know what I mean. So it's a really complex feeling and I don't want to live there. Excuse me for saying that. I don't want to live in Berlin. It's cold. <laughs> Everyone's German. And maybe it's an Israeli thing. I don't know. I'm not attracted to it. I tried. I can't. I'm going to try somewhere else and the world is big enough. And the most interesting and fun thing at the moment for me, maybe for you also, is the U.S. market, which is a total new virgin ground with high, super high demand now for European DJs, unlike never before in history. I don't know about you, but I'm getting gig requests from Boston and Texas, for God's sake. Who would ever thought that these places would, you know, even consider this music? So I'm much more excited about that than, you know, following Berlin's narrative, even though, you know, I can't say anything bad about it. It's the main place. It's the mecca of techno still to this day. But for me, it caused a lot of trouble in a sense. So let me ask you then, because I talked about this kind of 
Berlin snobbery with Cynthia when she was on the show. And we were kind of comparing notes a little bit on, on you know, our various different kind of career left turns and how people reacted to it. And she was describing, a um, you know, changing musical direction in the 2000s and having to, um, I guess, spend a couple of years turning the shit round, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do, I mean, just comparing it to, say, say Amsterdam, I mean, you mentioned the like the Dutch scene. Like, wh- what is it this different? Do you think is it people's attitudes, or is it just just the way the music is, and you feel like you fit there better? It's the musical roots. I mean, just like Israel, uh, Israel's DNA to electronic music is based on trance music. So in Berlin, it's you know based on Kraftwerk and dark industrial gloomy music. As if in Holland, it's more towards, you know, geeky, f- more fun electro kind of stuff, I guess. And they were always more open to more melodic music, even if it's their weird, I don't know, hard uh, schranz or whatever. Well, I mean, schranz is a big if thing there as well, the, right? <laughs> Yes, but it's a different side of it. If you hear the, the, the Dutch version, it's much more, you know, cheesy and joyful in a sense. And the Berlin stuff is much more serious and, you know... Just compare the people. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound racist or, or, or generalize, you know, a race or whatever. But Dutch people are, you know, fun, stone friendly and speak English. And Germans are Germans. I mean, <laughs> so <laughs> I think in, in their music, it goes the same. And don't get me wrong. Again, the, the, the rich and inst- amazing history of Berlin scene is second to none. I mean... Um, What's the name of that uh, big festival for experimental electronic music that's been around there? For- okay, that's amazing. And its history is amazing. But only, not only, but for those who are into that musical DNA. And for me, I realized that it's not exactly me. So right. just for me, it didn't work out as a, as, a, as, as, as a close relationship with that city, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. I mean, you mentioned North America as well. It's, it's funny because I think as a whole, it's a, it's a big generalization, just, just lumping it all in as one. But I think there's, uh, there's definitely peak, peak, <laughs> peaks and troughs to, the, to the, the various different kind of scenes that, that exist at any given moment now. Obviously, they had an amazing period of the 90s like everyone else, but um, it kind of goes up and down there. But I think you're right that there's, um, it's, in a, it's in a fairly good moment at the, uh, right now, notwithstanding the obvious uh, thing that happened in the last two years. But so have, have you spent much time in the States? I mean, obviously you're very influenced by, you know, Chicago and Detroit musically, but like, I mean, how much time have you been, have, have you spent there? So I'm going to my first tour ever this year. I got requests for a long time, but I never got the chance to make time just for that and to work on a visa and to have a proper, you know, US agency. I was hopping around between, between a few agencies and did a few weird mistakes. I mean, I was with you in Paramount, and Paramount is a great agency, but I was a really small name next to a few giants. Like, Nina Kravitz is not available. Would you like your Tamavni? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's not the same fee. It's not like... And I had a few gigs with you in Agoria, which was really humbling and amazing experience. And I met Carl Craig because he was in the same roster. And that's why when they offered me, I was like... I know this agency is way too big for me, but I will never get the chance to be around those like childhood heroes of mine. So I'm going to go for it. And for a while, it, it went well for me. But at some point, 
you know, the agency, uh, someone left and everyone was going to other places. And I came to this crossroad where like either I go to a German dark techno agency, either I go to the Inner Visions guys, which is, you know, super uh, commercial in that sense. And I went with the Inner Vision guys and afterwards with Compact, which, is, which was a mistake because musically I'm not there. I, was, I went there because I had an album there and I was planning the world tour there of the album. But um, picking the agency, the right agency for you is a real interesting and important topic that really defined my career in the last few years. Um, so to, to make a long story short, only now I'm going to the US to my first tour. And I have to thank actually Charlotte David for that. For some strange reason, Charlotte uh, sent me an email, offered me to join. She has like a, a lot of label nights in different cities in the States now. So I'm going to do the warm ups for her. And she's a real lifesaver. You know, I never met her in person. She doesn't yeah she doesn't owe me anything she doesn't know that i'm a funny guy that likes Kanye west we never met i'm not an instagram dj i'm not a female there's nothing politically correct about booking me but for some reason she wrote to me and i i'm really thankful for that that's really cool of her and i'm gonna join her tour hopefully in may june for my first time in new york uh, miami san francisco all of that and i'm very excited because i'm influenced by american djs and hopefully i will feel at home there So have you never been to the States before, period? No, that's the wow, thing, okay. not yet. All right, okay, well, this will be, yeah, this will be fun then. So, so what dates are you, are you doing? So it's going to be in June. Don't ask me the exact uh, dates, but it's around June. But which, uh, which, which cities? It will be San Francisco, New York, LA, and Miami. And I have requests from, um, from Texas and Boston. Yeah, okay. which is really surprising to me. I don't know. Maybe I, to, I didn't know. I've got that to say, man, I've, whenever I've played in Texas, it's been great. So I would uh, recommend. No, no, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be great, but I remember, you know, growing up, I never heard oh, yeah, that yeah, they yeah. had a scene. I thought that, you know, so I'm just happy that it's, I'm not patronizing or anything. I'm really yeah, happy. Yeah. I mean, Texas is fun generally <laughs> as a concept and, a, and an experience. Um, I was just wanted to go uh, into something that you just mentioned there, though, which is compact. So, As you mentioned, you've like jumped about a little bit stylistically in a sort of seven or eight year period of doing stuff, you know, being properly active. And obviously you had your album, Your Time Avenue Was Here, which is a great name, by the way, on Compact. And it was it was a bit different, right? It was a it was definitely its own thing. It stands stands apart, I, I would say, from the rest of your yeah. kind of catalogue. So tell me tell me about that. Tell me about the the record and how it, how it came together and how you were thinking about it and how it all panned up? I mean, it started with me trying to prove that I can do a few different genres in terms of proving something politically. But from that, it became just really confusing mess for me as if I couldn't find like the exact, you know, sub-genres and my, my saying. I was always hopping between... It's like a jack-in-a-box kind of thing, you know, here, look at me, I can release here, and whoo, look, I can release there, you know. Here's a gloomy dark techno track on uh, Andre Kornet's label, and look, I have an album on Compact, out of nowhere. So I thought that, like, you know, it's funny, it's cool. I wanted to surprise myself, the fans, and I realized that that's why I never had my own imprint. I love to work with other labels because when a label approached me, for example, Michael Meyer all of a sudden writes to me, 
I was like, wow, I would never thought that my music fits compact. But if he's offering me to do an album, I'm really, I'm, I, I want to do it. And by doing it, I know subconsciously that I'm going to do something that is, that could fit compact. I'm not going to do, you know, gloomy, dark, experimental techno that I would give Lucy or not even the same material that I would give Hot Flush. And... So it's like a Renaissance artist, like the church is inviting me to do a thing for their own. I don't have my own style, but I can imitate a lot of people. And in a sense, I feel like I'm still in search of my own sound. I mean, people relate me to some, you know, Orientalism, using a lot of vocals, and mixing, I don't know, Arabic vocals in a, in a lot of tracks. Someone told me in South Africa, some guy told me, you know, you should have your own genre, Afro-Arab music or something, which was really funny. Um, but I'm still, I cannot, I cannot choose one path. How can you, you know, I have, I'm, I'm really good friends with the Red Axis. I'm sure you remember I emailed you yeah, something yeah, yeah. about them. And they're the complete opposites. They're, you know, they're strictly into this, you know, indie dance, even smudge kind of thing. And they never had any desire to do anything else. And I'm super jealous of them. But for me, it's like doing a lot because I want to do many different things, but it, it hurts me like uh, career wise. And now I need to to really um, make myself stay in one lane to say, okay, I'm gonna stop doing the, I don't know, commercial excessive stuff and just focus on more dark techno because the crowd is just better. I mean, those commercial parties have really rough crowd. And I just want to meet people that I like, like you and Dustin Zahn and some Steve Rachman. Those are people that I miss seeing in gigs. I've been playing with so many Adriatics, like it's crazy. So I'm going to to be focused on that, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I've had similar experiences, to be honest, over the years. I go through stages where I think, oh, well, you know, maybe it'd be fun to make X form of music. And then suddenly you find yourself playing those parties and it's just like, oh, God, what have I done? Like, <laughs> how do I find myself there? You are totally inspiration for me in that sense. You did the unthinkable. You came from a broken beat all the way to fall to the floor, managed to have a life and death release and still have DJ gigs and have like underground credibility, but still do like more commercial gigs. And, and you you played it amazing. I don't know how you managed to, to pull this off, but uh, you're a total inspiration for me in that sense. I mean, yeah, it, well, I didn't really... Um a lot of it was not very well considered. I have to confess, to be honest. Of course, of course, of course. But let me ask you this. Are you... Holding yourself from doing musical projects that you want to do but not gonna release because it doesn't fit your musical DNA or whatever. I mean, I'm 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 at the point now where I I'm trying not to think too much about it, and I'm just trying to make music that I you know that I, I'm trying to free myself to make the music that I would make if I wasn't thinking about all that shit basically, which has been a, a bit of a process to, um, to kind of work through. Um, I'm, I'm working on an album at the moment, which is, um, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's, I mean, if I stepped back and looked, looked at it all objectively, I suppose it would be a bit more, a bit more similar to, you know, the stuff from, you know, 10 years ago or not, not 10 years ago. I mean, back in the, back in the sort of dubstep kind of era right? without, you know, without actually calling it dubstep, but that's zooming out quite significantly. And I'm really just trying to, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be free of those kind of oppressive thoughts, you know, because like what you've just described 
in in thinking oh no i've got a you know i've got a, i've got to limit myself i mean i've been i've been in that exact position too and and actually sometimes imposing that sort of discipline on yourself can be really useful um and it just depends where you are kind of mentally you know in in the in the in the right. process but you know it, it's it's definitely not not at all straightforward um jumping around i i in in many many ways i really envy people who just have done the same thing for 15 20 years you know <laughs> it's just completely straightforward exactly exactly how can jeff mills not get tired of playing these 909 tracks and 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 never you know want to do anything else no matter what kind of you know recondite talk about trap influences or whatever i would love to be one trick pony like recondite he's a genius i'm envy him so much you know just today i have a release an ambient electroacoustic jazz project with yui ondera who's a japanese ambient artist that i met in compact and we did a few tracks together totally ambient you know something for for really bbc6 and the wire magazine not that i'm going to get this support it's not that great but it's more around that musical territory which has nothing to do with what i released so far but it came to a point like where i'm i'm so used to that and my fans are used to that that look at me i'm gonna do a rap album in hebrew and then a experimental ambient piece and then an afro house track and then some dark techno at the same year i cannot stop doing it and it's been I mean, originally it would be best if I did it in a few different monikers, but it's all under the same name for ego reasons. I don't know why. So we are in complete opposite directions. I mean, in general, I, I only get your dubstep thing just now. I just this year got finally into dubstep. Right. Originally, when it, when it happened at real time, all I heard was like the, the really commercial sounding scream and Skrillex. So... It was really out of my radar, the, the good stuff, the deep, darker stuff. And only now, you know, I just got exposed to it. And I'm, fo- I'm going to sleep with a Spotify playlist called Sablo. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't know if yeah, you know yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. A, this is what I put on when I want to, to fall asleep. And I, I follow all these uh, names, all these producers on I- Instagram. And, and they follow me back. So I'm like, hey, they know me even though I'm from the fall, the fl- fall to the floor since. So only now I really, I wish it was like 2010 for me. Now I would love to go to Bergen to hear one of your substance sets <laughs> just now for the first time. So we are complete opposite. Right, yeah. I mean, that was, um, the substance era was, was definitely fun. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it passed a lot of people by. You know, and I think I, I get quite a lot of people saying, "Oh, I wish you could, <laughs> wish you were still doing that now, so we go and have go and have oh, a go." Oh, not the only one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's You're funny. Not the only one. Okay, so there's an area that I'm afraid we definitely have to talk about. It's slightly difficult. Um, it's part of my motivation for having this conversation now, though, and obviously it's relating to the political situation and you know your position as an Israeli artist. Oh yeah. You mentioned the effect of the uh, suicide bombing at Pasha in, uh, in 2002, I think it was. Right. Um, and and just, just, just to get going, like gen- generally, I wanted to ask you about like the, like the effect of the political situation on the scene and on the development of the scene over time. Right. So, if, so just, just, just putting, you know, putting your own experience to one side right, for right. a moment, like... Um, like how has it affected it like over the years? Yeah, I mean, growing up in Israel, unfortunately, it's it's really you cannot avoid 
you know, everywhere I go, whenever they hear I'm Israeli, I need to tell my opinion about politics or whatever. And for me, the rebellion was to never vote. I never voted. I know a lot of people would get pissed off about it. I didn't serve the army. I'm not really heavy. I mean, my, 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 you know, my thoughts and carries towards the left wing side of things, you know, not to go too deeply into the conflict or whatever, but of course I'm more into the liberal side and I, I didn't serve the army and I would never do that. But uh, regarding the effect it had on the scene, I can say this. First of all, there are a lot of artists that are just banning Israel. I mean... I don't know if it's... Yeah, I can name drop. Why not? I mean, it's not a secret. It's their choice and that's fine. I don't judge them. But anyone from uh, Andrew Weatherhall, uh, RP to DJ Sneak, Ricardo Villalobos, Brian Eno, obviously, there are a lot of like artists they we tried to book and have here that told us like, no, we will never come to play uh, in your country, which is fine. We don't hold it against them. It's just something that we are used to, but it's part of being like Israeli. You know, this is a common experience to have. Um, and how do, you, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about artists boycotting? Yeah, so I'm saying I, I don't judge them. I feel them. I feel if, if I were in their shoes and I didn't have to have this gig in Israel, I would pass it also. Who needs this headache just for one gig in, in the Middle East? I mean, in the most selfish way, you know, regarding if it helps the solution or not, that's a total different debate. And I respect both sides. You can say that, yeah, I will only, for, for instance, uh, Nicolas Jarre agreed to come here only if we do a party that involves both Arab and Jewish people, you know, the same party, as if we never had laws, you know, against Arabs coming to the parties or whatever. But so we did that and that went fine and we're fine with that. We're not angry about it. We totally get it. We're just used to it. And, and me personally, I don't hold against it anyone. Like, again, if I was in their shoes, I would probably, I don't know if necessarily, but I get their, their perspective and maybe I would behave the same. Right. Regarding the security issues, like I said, in 2001, when I was in high school, the suicide bombing era started in Tel Aviv itself. It was dangerous to be in a restaurant, in a coffee place. It was like three or four years that there were suicide bombings in the street. So that literally killed the nightlife, the big clubs. It killed it totally. And it had to rise from the ground up, from small basements, all the way up now, 10, 15 years later, where we have all the big festivals from Digital Festival, Lost in a Moment, um, the Telovas stuff, all that shit. I mean, we have like four or five big major festivals every holiday here. Like the, all the biggest names are playing here on a regular basis. Because for the last decade, we, we don't have any... Tel Aviv is not a war zone. Let's just say that. Sure. I mean, that going from that kind of point of like a really low point um, that you just described in the mid 2000s, like, did it ever feel like that it would never get back to what it was? Yes. When I grow up, the older DJs, you know, we envied the 90s. In the 90s, you know, BBC declared Tel Aviv as like the Ibiza of the Middle East. And even there was this show, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but BBC Prime had this show called Worldwide Clubbing. And there was an episode about Tel Aviv. And just to remind you, the first global underground mix album by Tony David was recorded in Tel Aviv, mind you. 
So, um, so the 90s was really happy here and the scene was really, really thriving. And since, I mean, trans music was popular in the end of the 90s. So yeah, Israel was like really, really, really happening. The scene was really big and happy. And when I started to go out, it was super small, super niche. And everyone's told me like, it's all gone, Pitong. It's not going to be like the 90s. So in terms of like coming from that zero to to like you mentioned the um how it is now with you know major festivals and all the rest of it like what was the what was the process there like was it just a just just a, literally a case of just building year on year or were there, were there like significant events along the way or key turning points It's a few things uh, first of all the the government of the last 10 years is not to my liking but The fact is that they stopped the whole suicide bombing and war became only focused in Gaza and in the borders. So the central of the country became super safe. And because of that, during time, like more, the block opened, you probably played there or know about this. So, so a lot of big clubs are started to open again. And another thing that happened is the... The Israeli young generation of producers, I mean, Guy Gerber and Shlomi Haber in 2015-16 to 2010 were like the first Israeli guys to make it big internationally in the non-trans music stuff. And after them, there was started like a big, big wave of producers that now, I don't know if you follow the so-called indie dance music that Red Axis are ruling it, um, Moscow men. White Square, I don't know if you know the name, but those are all Israeli DJs and producers and they are really big names. And because they are big names, they are bringing those, you know, international connections to Israel. And anyone from Damien Lazarus to Tel Avaz to Solomon um, having their events here even more than one time a year. I mean, when there's no war, there are a lot of good reasons to have a really good scene here. besides you know war and whatever right yeah okay so just in terms of your like personal experience as a as an Israeli artist and actually now that you mention it also a Russian artist um, you <laughs> yeah. got your double cancelled there unfortunately in, in the eyes of certain <laughs> certain people <laughs> totally or maybe in one and maybe maybe you win in one and and, and lose in another in other and other people's minds <laughs> but um, <laughs> I guess my question is Well, how has your experience, do you think, been altered by the fact that you're an Israeli? Um, so, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm being asked everywhere I go. But like, like you ask me about political stuff. Everywhere I go in every interview or every party that I go to, they ask me about it. But to be completely honest, just because I'm really pro prolific producer that worked really hard and my sound is not necessarily fits like the Israeli musical wave that I mentioned. I had a few gigs where they asked me, do you know Red Access or whatever? Yeah, I know them, but we don't play the same gigs or whatever. And if you expect this music, I mean, maybe I'm not the right guy or whatever. So again, I feel alienated from the Israeli musical scene, from the Israeli political views. from a lot of Israeli culture, like it's a very macho kind of uh, mentality here. And I'm this really Russian sensitive, sweet guy that used to like Kanye West, but not anymore. 
And uh, so I always felt like not really completely fitting the Israeli narrative. Definitely not Russian. I mean, when my parents left Russia in the 70s, it was during the Soviet Union. So my mother's worst fear is that I would date a Russian. She hates Russian. She's a Russophobian, if that's even a word. So now more than ever, she's like, fuck, yeah, we left you. Like, go to hell and whatever. So I, I'm not, I can't identify myself really as completely Israeli, definitely not Russian. But I do feel that I'm part of house and techno culture and community where your nationality, gender shouldn't matter at all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's supposed to be part of the whole thing, right? Um, I mean, obviously in practice, it hasn't always worked out like that. And, you know, there's been this wider drive towards, you know, diversity and inclusion over the past few years, whether it's, you know, gender equality on lineups or, you know, greater recognition for, for example, African-American producers. But obviously um, the position of, of Jews is, you know, conspicuous by its absence in that movement. And um, I have got to say, for me, that's a bit of a problematic aspect of it as a whole. I mean, just from your perspective, like... You mentioned those shows in the States. That's why I was uh, mentioning Charlotte's uh, uh, invitation. I was like, this is really goes against what's you know, popular and politically correct at the moment. So I was really surprised. Like for me, did this whole thing, I mean, it's important. It's lovely. It's great. I'm all for it. But I'm in the, not in that team. I'm in the team of white privileged male men. So it's my time to shut up sit at the bench and work harder to... Yeah, I mean, I guess the issue there is like, um, there's a kind of overlap between different groups and their positions. I mean, I guess I'm hinting at intersectionality there, which is often used in feminist discourse, but actually it's quite an interesting way of thinking about relative levels of privilege generally. But I guess where I was coming at it from was like sort of hand in hand with this the kind of diversity thing has been from from some people anyway not not from not from everyone it seems to be like a kind of hardening of attitudes towards israelis and i guess what i guess what i was asking and and in my previous question too was like have you experienced any of that stuff in terms of like you know people being less well disposed towards israelis yes in general i mean uh, i got more bad reactions than good ones we represent the oppressor side we are the the stronger we are the the bad person in the story. If you look at it from English media, European media, it's easier to take uh, the Palestinian side. And I get it. I'm also in that side. Unfortunately, I was born and raised here in Israel as an Israeli. And unfortunately, I have to deal with the Middle East conflict and have an opinion about it, even though I don't even know who's the the the. the not the prime minister, I know the name of the prime minister, but all the rest of them, I, I don't even follow the news. And, you know, as an Israeli, like I said, you don't like hummus, you don't like trance, and you don't follow politics, go back to Russia, you sick fuck. <laughs> so unfortunately for me, when they meet me, I don't talk about it as much. I know I met some people, you know, whenever there's war in Gaza and I'm touring and people are talking about it, I'm the first one to say, yeah, we are pieces of shit. This situation is horrible. I have Arab friends. I'm all for the Palestinian Palestinian side. 
I'm in the side that wants peace. So therefore, if you criticize me or wants to not come to my parties, if I want to book you, I totally get you and I don't judge you. But I get a lot of, you know, bad backlash from it. It never served me well. It's not like there's a good Jewish community in, in Poland that booked me a lot or something like that. No, it was due to the fact, even though that I'm Israeli, I managed to get booked to this, this and that. It, it didn't serve me well. Yeah, I mean, that's not a huge surprise given the, you know, the wider attitudes. And I guess, I guess what I'm getting at with this whole thing is, well, relating it to the Russia issue, which I don't think is a directly comparable situation at all. But like politically, militarily, I think those comparisons are way off. But I think that you know, the way like, like citizens of these two countries are caught up in this stuff, is is very similar and i think the way that people are tending to treat like ordinary russians is very similar in to the way that israelis get treated regardless of their political outlooks like i mean you know you've been quite clear about what you think politically of you know the israeli government and all that stuff and i completely share those concerns likewise with Russia, I mean, it's been pretty clear to me for a long, long time that Vladimir Putin is a pretty awful person. But it's a big stretch to go from there to, you know, blaming the average Russian for what he does. And actually, when you do that, I guess the danger is that you're kind of doing his works for him. And I guess, you know, for you personally, as as an, as an Israeli with Russian descent, you know, it must be a pretty difficult position to find yourself in. From both sides, I'm not proud. I can't walk around being proud that I'm Israeli fully. I can't walk around proud saying I'm, I have Russian roots. And if, even being Jewish, you know why? That's why I want to go to the States. The States is the only place where being Jewish or Israeli is not a bad thing. And in Europe, it's the complete opposite. And I get it. But uh, I honestly think feel feel that I'm not. Are you proud to be English, Paul? Well, I have a slightly complicated family background in that I was born in London, and brought up in the UK, but the vast majority of my family are Irish, and Ireland was um, an early victim of British imperialism and was um, subjected to some pretty awful treatment over you know centuries. So I'm. I have a complicated relationship with being being British, being English. But, you know, just the British Empire generally around the world, not super popular, right? So Exactly. Anyway, um, yeah, we had to get into this stuff. I have to say it's a bit of a thorny topic, obviously. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we tackled it to an extent. So there's one last area that I want to talk about. Um, it's slightly lighter the previous few minutes of chat we talked about the Kanye album at the top I'm not going to ask you any more about Kanye but um, <laughs> I'm asking everyone about albums and we talked about your album already but I wondered first of all like I wonder how you think about the album format generally this is a question I'm asking everyone so I need to get I just want everyone's opinion on this down on paper yeah yeah so the album format generally in 2022 your thoughts, and then I'm going to ask you for some some albums that you like. But yeah, kick, uh, hit me with your thoughts on the album format. So like probably everyone answered it, I'm going to try to tackle it from two different angles. 
first as a listener and then as a producer or a label right. owner. Um, first of all, if you think back, dance floor or DJ-friendly music was never meant to be in album format. This is a weird creation coming in the 90s. You know, there's so many... Why would you print like a Trezor DJ Tools album on CD for home listening? You know, it was really weird stuff. I mean, you have the Carl Craigs and whatever, and that's why Carl Craig is considered to be, I don't know, the Miles Davis of techno. He's the first one that, you know, offered a really home listening techno album. But there's a lot of like, you know, dance floor oriented stuff that are not, perfect and not suitable necessarily for the album format and it feels like people are just packaging different tracks to a piece that is not really you know one hole that is bigger than its parts um, so even when I did the compact album I was like um, hinting a bit the fact that I can't do really I mean when a dance floor friendly producer tries to do like IDM for the album or ambient in his album, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's nice and sweet. It's a very nineties thing to do because you think, okay, people going to listen to it at home. This is my chance to do something for home listening. But if I want to re- listen to ambient or IDM tracks with all due respect, I'll go to Biosphere or Affix Twin. I wouldn't go to a techno producer, photo the floor guy, even though, even if he's amazing at doing it. If you're that great in it, do that instead of the dance floor material. So in general, regarding photo the floor, dance floor music, I think it was never perfectly matched with album format. But regarding rock music, hip hop music, um, and the art form in general of a long player, I'm all for it. I love it. I love albums that are, you know, mashed into one piece that you listen from beginning to end. I love Kendrick for that. He has this album that you can play uh, also backwards in the track selection. And it has secret tracks, hidden tracks in the end or whatever. I love it. As a listener, it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. I love the album format. Um, and also for uh, ele- uh, electronic uh, producers, if you make ambient music of course the album format is perfect you know just one track or two a single of a droney petty one track ambient is not enough like you want one hour of this piece so that's my thoughts regarding that and in terms of favorite personal favorite albums ah first of all i want to say also that uh, as a big jazz fan i lo- in in jazz you know Artists tend to release a lot of albums because every recording session that you have ending up to be even more than one album. You know, it's not that uh, sacred as if a rock band working four years, like you two going to Morocco for four years with Brian Eno to make a one-hour album. In jazz, it's like capturing a moment in time. This was June 69 in New York. We recorded it. It was improvised. We, we released it on a record. And it was another session and another album in a discography that includes hundreds of albums, right? So in the, I, I like that in jazz. And so every genre has its you know, place with how it should um, work with it. Some genres, like I said, fit it more, some less. But regarding uh, music um, as a record label or an artist, we can all agree that if you have 
10 or 12 great tracks that you want to release, you rather you should release them as singles diff- uh, independently just because you want to feed the, the streaming machines all the time, right? And then to release it again. Yeah, I mean, this is the way things have developed, right? I mean, the album, is, it's funny, you, um, well, it's, it's completely accurate, in fact, what you said about, you know, dance tracks and albums in the 90s. And, you know, obviously the, the album originally was the LP format and then what became the cassette format, which is basically the same. So you have two, two sides of, you know, maybe at the most 25, 30 minutes each. And then the music was, in, in some cases, some important cases, directly made to fit, well, designed to fit those constraints. And right. similarly, dance tracks have been generally made, or certainly uh, were made up until the sort of comparative death of the vinyl format, to fit, but they were made to fit on a, on a 12-inch single, right? Right. That's why they're like they are. Also, before streaming, um, buying a CD album was the only way for you to listen to electronic music if you're, if you're not a vinyl DJ. I don't want to collect vinyl singles. I'm just a guy that wants, you know, a mixed album. That's why a DJ Kicks has more value and is more authentic to your art form than an artist album or studio album. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Okay, so, yeah, chuck me some of your favorite albums. Oh, wow. So I would say uh, 808 and Heartbreaks by Kanye, even though my feelings towards him are more uh, complex nowadays. I would say Rhythm and Sound See Me Ya, which is brilliant. It's like the same track, the same rhythm, but different, you know, singers. And it still rocks for one hour straight. I'm a big fan of David Sylvian. He has an album called Blemish from 2003 with Fenenz and Ryuchi Sakamoto. It's a great album. And not very original, but I would have to mention Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. It's just amazing. Cool. Great, man. Well, listen, thanks very much for doing this. It's been fun. Thank you so much for having me. That was Yotam Avni and... Uh, in that intro right at the very top, I think I probably made out like we were going to be talking about politics for more than we actually did. It was just about 15 minutes or so in the end. But um, I think we um, we got into some some important topics, covered some important ground. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we did that. So obviously, uh, in the beats that I was hitting on this episode, I was, you know, emphasizing Russian and Israeli citizens and obviously I'm not forgetting about Palestinians and Ukrainians in each of those two conflicts and hopefully in the coming weeks we're going to be able to get some of those voices on the show too. It's just a little bit difficult to predict the schedule. Um, Doing these every week is challenging in terms of lining people up and knowing when people are going to be able to record and we're still finding our feet with that administratively so um yeah as i said haven't forgotten those voices and hopefully we'll be representing them soon so just before we go gotta say a big thank you to everyone who came to my shows in north america over the last two weekends had denver minneapolis toronto vancouver and el paso had a really good time there just about back in europe by now got a release out this friday it's um dj clear remixing 
Forgive Me. She is a exciting producer from Sweden and really like what she's done with the track. So that's out Friday on Hot Flush, of course. And um, yeah, I'm working hard on new material. So um, hopefully some of that will see the light of day sooner rather than later. Um, I think that's about it for this week. I will be back, of course, next week with another one. Um, So just before we go, leave us a review or a rating. really does help wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit that five-star button. Join us in the Discord if you want to discuss any of the topics covered today. I say that with a small degree of trepidation, although I don't think anything particularly controversial was said, frankly. And finally, follow the Spotify playlist of the show, which features all of the music, or the majority of the music anyway, that we talk about. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye. I'll see you next week on the next edition of the Not A Dive In podcast. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.